You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera and everything in between. If you have a piece of hunting gear or a piece of hunting equipment that needs a battery, Interstate Batteries has got you covered. You can go to a local retail store or you can go visit online at interstatebatteries.com. They have thousands of local retail shops all over the U.S., so you can go there as well. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Hey guys, welcome to Land and Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith. We're co-owners of a consulting company called, go figure, Land and Legacy. This is your number one podcast resource for all things land. Each week we're breaking down topics from land management, habitat management, conservation, farming practices, and real estate. We hope you guys enjoy it. All right, so, Kyle, sum up the day in one sentence. (laughs) Can you do it? Um, As far as habitat speaking. You didn't realize it? No, I didn't think you were going to do it that quick. uh, the farm we looked at today, as one might expect, needs needs added diversity. That'd be a shocker to hear that word, right? Yeah, that's but, right. But it's pretty, I mean, there was multiple components. There was a, f- a food plot component, um, some kind of grassy old field component, and a timber component, but none of those were very diverse. Yes, all of those were pretty simple, basic, and need need some work. That's right. So, uh, guys, if you haven't figured out, this podcast is going to be uh, Frank. Not Frank. Kyle. I've been called worse. You've been called <laughs> Kyle Hedges and myself talking about a consultation that we're, com- we're returning from uh, in the Midwest, southern Iowa, and... Basically, what we found is typical for properties that we visit in this part of the world, uh, kind of the upper Midwest, Great Plains kind of region. 
Um, let's just add that giant deer come from this area. They've heard us talk about that on the podcast. Like everybody knows, giant deer come out of southern Iowa, northern Missouri, and yet the habitat is still not that great uh, when we're looking at the native landscape. And I mean, Kyle can test as far as a quail manager or a upland bird manager what would you rank this farm from a one to ten for holding having usable space for upland birds oh yeah no it'd be down in the it'd be down in the one or two yeah and they see them in the summer on this place but they commented that they don't ever see them or they don't see them very often in the winter it came to no surprise we heard that at the beginning so i'll ask you what when he made that statement at the beginning that they see him and hear him in the summer but they're not there during hunting season what did you think like okay i my assumption is the landscape is lacking this yeah so the for sure obviously suitable winter cover but hard uh you know the suitable brushy stuff but with the herbaceous cover too yeah so i already knew going into it when he made this statement that he had a thousand acres of pasture so some bird production is not surprising yeah right but obviously by the end of fall and into winter the grazing regime is is not bird suitable it's producing some birds so during the growing season they're able to produce some birds in these pastures made sense to me what i was curious as soon as he made that comment is i wonder what the neighbors looks like because these birds are going somewhere and people don't realize it but i mean quail if they have to it's not ideal but they'll migrate whether it's a quarter mile or a mile or two we've had birds that move three miles but i've seen coveys migrate a mile with radio collars on so and it didn't take very long once we start tootling around guess what some of his neighbors have crp crp contracts some of them have like three-year-old crp contracts that not only are they getting winter quail migrating to them from this guy they're producing quail i'm sure too so yeah yeah i I think so one comment was you know they see upland birds they see the pheasants and they see quail but then they don't see them during hunting season but then the other question or concern was we want bigger deer to stay on the farm during hunting season and so i don't know about you but immediately i'm like well what if if food plots or crop fields are removed what is the dominant forage for a white-tailed deer during the months of late November and December, January. Well, I'm looking for woody brows. Right. I'm looking for that young forest regeneration or that shrub component. And so it didn't take me very long driving around to see, we go from tall trees to grass or crop. And that is lacking. And uh, And mostly non-native cool season grass to boot. That's right. And so, and we'll get on, we'll get in that here sometime soon. So, um, so guys, it, it's kind of a, we're recapping a consult and it's, it's early November, or not, October. Man, I'm really messing this up. Um, <laughs> First time, I know. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, it's early October. We just consulted in southern Iowa. We're headed back home. So, you can probably hear a little bit of road traffic, but 
Kyle and I are discussing, he joined me on this consult uh, to kind of basically to look at this landscape and say, Landon has three main goals. Uh, stewardship, so he wants to improve the landscape holistically to where we're not just focusing on one species. He wants to see um, more quality hunting and uh, with those things in mind, there was a third one and I forgot it. What was the, the other one? Do you remember? Oh, it was tied to hunting, wasn't it? I don't even remember either. Yeah, uh, ba basically a more holistic mindset of management, uh, a better experience, and then working in crops, cattle, and wildlife all into one. Um, and so <coughs> having those things in mind, we're looking at a property where I think if anybody's honest with themselves, they would love to be in this part of the world during first week of November. It's southern Iowa, giant deer. But yet there's a lot of things that commonly happen here that are detrimental to animals, uh, to a steady or increasing wildlife population. Um, you know, just look at, just <clears throat> describe the landscape. We're looking at crop fields, monoculture crop fields, hay fields that are mostly uh, alfalfa and some other cool season grasses. And then we're looking at pastures of cool season grasses and then closed canopy forest. I can think of maybe six acres that's like an, a, a field that is old field, you might say, that's got a lot of natives. Yep. Um, so for the most part, the landscape is not in anything of its natural or native state. This area was prairie and oak savannas, was the dominant ecosystems, the dominant landscapes, and yet did we see any of those? No. No. And we're not that far away. A um, couple, um, couple things we saw were very exciting. So. I think if if we're honest and we talk about what we've seen in the past, working all this, uh, all these farms across country, this is a common theme. Um, you have areas that are really focused on wildlife, but the main thing that's occurring is uh, a lack of native disturbance and a lack of, or a uh, large amount of non-native species, and so. Kyle, talk a little bit about how often you see non-native species encroaching on a landscape. Oh, yeah, unfortunately, way too often, right? I mean, whether it's in the right-of-ways when you're driving down highways or just, uh, you know, looking into people's fields or, or being on people's properties or on public land across the, the state and across the country, it's... Um, oh. State agencies are spending a large part of their budget, um, you know, fish and wildlife agencies on non-natives. And it's unfortunate because you could be doing a lot of good habitat work if we weren't fighting stuff that shouldn't even be there. And sometimes it's not direct. Uh, Adam and I had this conversation yesterday, I think, where, you know, you're, you're having to plan a Roundup-ready soybean food plot because you're fighting Johnson grass, but you don't... 
that's not necessarily your food plot of choice, but you're trying to deal with something that shouldn't be there in the first place, mm-hmm. trying to correct that problem until I can get to something else so I can plant a pollinator mix or, or something else. So he's introduced cool season grasses, uh, you know, and they're just not, hey, this guy's got deer. We're making it sound like it's a toilet, but it's really, a, I mean, it's still a pretty good property. So we, we it's saw an one, amazing property. We saw 170 yesterday afternoon at 3 o'clock. <laughs> I mean, it, it's the legit property. Oh, for sure. And, and and I would love to own a piece of property yeah. like this, but there's still a lot of work oh, to go Oh, absolutely. Involved. So and then it, you think, my goodness, what could it be? He just happens to be lucky and in the right part of the world, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's one of those, like, even as far as, let's just break it down in food plot world. Like, we preach so much about no-till, 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 don't do deep tillage. Try not to turn the soil, but then you go to Southern Iowa and you can keep turning it, and it's phenomenal food plots. And you're like, "Oh, that's that's amazing! Why why do you even preach it? Because this guy's got phenomenal results." Well, when you're in something so good, like you, you there's not a there's not a whole lot of room for error where conditions are already not favorable. Like, so you take the Ozark Mountains soil is very poor anyway it's very rocky lots of gravel so you start this low organic matter and you start heavy tillage it doesn't take very long and you're you're really really struggling there's so much organic matter and amazing loam filled soils in southern Iowa that you could till 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 and you may never even notice a difference but at some point down the line if you continue that somebody's going to notice a difference and when you look at the management in southern Iowa, it's one of those where phenomenal deer, and you don't have to do a lot. Put out a few food plots, maybe a little bit of prescribed fire, and you can still have great deer. What we're talking about is, oh, lordy, how good is it going to be if you get really in-depth in your habitat management? Sure, yeah. And to, uh, you know, hey, you can. Own, do you want to own the... You do this and you do that, and all of a sudden you're owning a Cadillac instead oh, of the sure. Chrysler 300, right? It looks <laughs> like the Cadillac. I mean, that's right. That's the difference. Trick, yeah, for sure. Trick this place out, and and not a whole lot of work to do it. No. There's, uh, or even just some of it to hunt different. Yeah. They're struggling change. a little bit with deer come from every direction and change a few things and control that somewhat. Uh, yeah. To when he's bringing his buddies in, now you, now you can expect you're not you're not <clears throat> blowing into the wrong place and, and deer winning you that you're not seeing anymore. And for sure, for sure. So um, so many so many wonderful things about this property. I, I truly loved it. I thought it was a beautiful farm. Um, and when you look, when yep. I, you could say there's a beautiful farm. I mean, crops looked awesome. Stand, some great views. The creek rolling through it. You're like, boy, this is just beautiful. But from a habitat standpoint, it's like there's some tweaks that we really need to make to make this so much better. Um, and, and they're really not hard tweaks. It's not going to cost a fortune to do it. And, in fact, one of the big things will hopefully put money in the landowner's pocket through a logging operation um, and trying to thin that timber. Um, so, Kyle, let me ask you this. this. So, for you guys, this is one of Kyle and I's first uh, – first time is really working a property together so we kind of leaning on each other looking at each other and working together coming from his background my background and truthfully we're not really 
we look at the property almost the exact same way. Oh, here's the problem. Here's the issue. Let's fix it. Whether he's got a, a list of backgrounds that's working with upland birds to improve it, and I've worked so much with trying to improve land for whitetail deer, ultimately, at the end of the day, we're doing the exact same management. Um, trying to remove non-native cool season grasses, trying to thin, open up canopy, thin some timber, get some woody, shrubby components on the landscape, prescribe fire, and it may come to a shock to a lot of deer hunters that may be listening, but we both would be trying to incorporate those cattle in a, in a different management system that they're already on. Is that all true? Yeah, right. Sure. I mean, in a, and, and some of that may not play into this guy's operation. Some of it was income-driven, right? He may not be able to manipulate some of the cattle situation. Yeah. If, if he wanted to maximize If we deer, were in an ideal world, that's what we 100%, I'm going all in for deer this, or all in for quail or whatever, and this guy isn't there. He, he's going to continue a cattle, and that's fine. I like cattle for a variety of these things. Um, but... But there can be some manipulations. Uh, even you know, we saw a, a neat little piece that that the, they probably shouldn't have been in. They're grazing some timber that they probably didn't need to be in. There was no forage value, and that was some of the only old growth timber on the whole place. Yeah. Uh, so some simple, you know, well, why are they in there? Well, I, you know, my renter, I don't know. <laughs> so yeah. Let's fix that piece of fence and not have them in this 20 acres of That's old right. growth timber. So. And let's restore that savanna. Yeah. 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 What you said something earlier, I want to go back to. You said that you know you talked about the upland birds that he's already seeing some quail and pheasants, and you made this connection with that he's got a thousand acres of pasture. Um, if you were to say, I know I asked you this on one of the very first podcasts you're on, but is there a connection where you automatically go, well, you don't have many quail because you've got too many. Your grass is too thick. Would you have cattle or would you not have cattle in an ideal world? For quail production? For overall land management. I would have cattle. Yeah. Somehow involved. In this rainfall, I mean, so this part of Iowa, we're in the 45-plus inch rainfall. I'm going to have cattle somehow because unless I've got people that can, whether I'm doing it for deer, turkeys, quail, I don't care. I'm going to have some amount of cattle because we're going to have too thick a rank and less diverse grass, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, in most situations, unless there's an entire crew working on a property and they can burn a checkerboard that I lay out, and that's just not realistic. Nope. Yeah. I've never met anybody that operates that way, so it's not going to happen. So wake up to Riyadh. We're not living in unicorn land. I want cattle on the landscape. I would too. I'm from the income, from the aspect of uh, even you said it. That was my next question: is what about if you were just a deer guy? Well, still. Well, I want the disturbance because it's going to change the the diversity. So we saw. So we're dealing with um, on this guy's almost all this pasture. There was some fescue. A lot of it was brome pasture. Yeah. Which is typical of southern Iowa. Yes. Smooth brome. We come up to one field, looks completely different. And I I already knew what had happened um, before I even asked the landowner. It it had natives in it. It's got 
big blue, it's got Indian grass, it's got, and then it's ragweed, it had a whole bunch of forbs, it's all yep. kinds of stuff poking its head trying to come through this. Yet, it's in the middle of all these other pasture units. There was several, I think there was five different pastures, um, are all smooth brome. And I look at this, there's no cows in it right now. You know, the big blue is six foot tall. And I said, your renter grazed the heck out of this in May, didn't he? Like grazed it to a pool table. And he says, yeah, I think, I think, I think so. He moved them out here and they haven't been back. <clears throat> oh, look at what's here. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. why I would want cattle in the opera, even without quail. That field should have so much more deer forage in it than all the smooth brome pastures just by the graze timing for sure and oh. I, I just when i looked at that i was like oh my gosh think of what's in that seed bank yes oh my gosh it would be just so that's where in, in a perfect world if if i'm managing that chunk of ground with cattle i want a whole big section that's of that warm season component like we saw there that had yep so many different warm season forbs and grasses but then i've got you know i've, I've got to have my cool seasons it'd be really hard to to keep my cows on that property year round yeah. without those cool seasons. which he does I mean, yeah. we ask about that so he's got them there all winter so you know yeah you've got to have some amount of cool season especially if you're going to overwinter them you're going to feed bales you're going to beat up someplace yes that's just going to happen They're, they get quite a bit of snow so and that's okay. Yeah. It's going to be part of the, there's going to be a little give and take there, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're trying to make income, make the payments on the farm, pay off some whatever break even, pay for all your other expenses, you've got to have that. It'd be really hard to make your living off of straight warm season grasses throughout the entire pasture. Yeah. It'd get pretty, pretty lonesome out there. Yeah. Um, Unless you're running straight stock. I mean, that's a Kansas Flint Hills deal, right? Oh, yeah, we're not, stockers. We're yeah. not in the Flint. This is still cow-calf country, same yep. as Missouri. So. Yeah, so that was that was just a phenomenal thing to see because it's like, man, I know at some point he's going to put the cows back in there, but could you imagine if he hadn't? Oh, yeah. I, I just think about that. Every property we go to, I play this game in my head, okay? If he was to call and say, you want to come hunt with us this fall, where would I want to go? That's a place I wouldn't feel upset to go and sit there. Yep. Um, so I'm going to ask you this. what? Looking at that farm, what was your favorite thing that you saw? The most exciting thing to me was uh, there, that field, the one we just spoke about, and uh, there was two cool season fields um, that are that are not in pasture, not in hay. They're kind of isolated in the middle of the property next to the timber that he had just done a burn on, hadn't even sprayed them, and they were 50% natives. Probably the first burn that had been done in 40 years. And they came up, they'd been smooth brome, and just his burn timing, a late spring burn, and they're 50% natives. So I guess my excitement, most exciting thing was oh my gosh this guy's got something to work with yeah it's not all right you're gonna have to spray once maybe twice and you're gonna have to burn the duff off you're gonna have to order all this seed you're gonna have to drill it right you're gonna have to hope you get rain that year and i mean all that stuff sometimes happens and that's what you we got to do and that's okay but there's a lot less variables in this guy's situation it's already here 
He just has to yank yeah. that tarp of yeah. cool season grass. You don't have to worry about, well, you buried the drill and, and, and you know. You planted too deep. Planted it four inches deep. And Order it, your seed again. Yeah, let's do it all over again. <laughs> it grew up to all foxtail and you didn't mow it the first year to keep it, you know, whatever. There's there's a lot of hurdles to yeah. to reestablishing this stuff and it's all there. And I guess that was the most exciting thing for me is, oh, <clears throat> man, I wish... I wish more stuff that I worked with had this much seed bank. Yeah. I don't have this easy of No. That's why <laughs> we that's why we like at home. Southern Iowa because yes. it's most of the time it's there. It's just like uh, it's just a few tweaks to make it phenomenal. Yeah. My farm in Kansas doesn't have this much remnant stuff. I mean, we've had to plant everything. We've had to kill fescue and plant everything. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the uh one of my favorite places was the first day we looked at that spot that he had gone in with a tree shear and removed cedars. Yes. And just just cut cedars and pushed them off the hill. And, and you know, there was areas around it that was just showing, kind of represented what it was before he cut them. And I very, very thick, not completely closed up, not like you would crawl under there under those cedars and see nothing but needles but you'd see clumps of grass and things kind of spider webbing through 75 percent closed i bet yeah and the areas that he had treat cut the cedars out and pushed off i mean we saw indian grass and big blue uh, it was rough blazing star. rough blazing star I mean, it wasn't um, just a few random, yeah, there was some good stuff coming Really, up. you know, Rough Blazing Stars, one of, I, I say this, I think, I swear, I feel like I say it with every plant, so I, I should just stop saying it's one of my favorites, but it really is one of my favorites. It's so cool, and, and it's growing on that spot that was just covered up with cedars, uh, and I just think it's another representation of what could happen with a little bit of work. Well, and these spots were only the size of, you know, a shop or a two, yeah. two houses, yeah. Little little holes, which would be enough. I mean, I'm sure there was. Well, we saw beds. There was deer using them. But yeah, very bucky. My goodness, the potentials. You know, he could cut another three thousand cedars and have <laughs> prairie acres of this stuff, <laughs> which is what it was. Yeah. I and mean, this is what it was ten thousand years ago. That's what it was a hundred years ago. It was That's prairie. Right. That's right. And it's so much more beneficial. And I just like, man, if you if you just devoted your time and you restored that to, you you've got summer, you could send the cows in there for, yep. a quick pass through the summer and take the pressure off some of your cool season pastures. But uh, that brings up another point, like another key management that I think a lot of guys could find this on their property if you have any old fields. Um, just any areas that were once pasture that now the cows aren't in there and it's just it's just vacant land and um, you, you're going well that's kind of just an old field we see deer in and around there well it's a struggling old field like like some of these areas a lot of these areas we saw um, it's kind of rolling terrain so ridge tops are crop or they might be trees they might be uh, pasture but then you go down in the drainage, and it's it's timber. But there's that there's that transition zone between where it's too steep for hay or it's too steep for crops. 
but the trees haven't started growing yet. Yeah. And it could be five yards wide or it could be 30 yards wide. It could be a little bit more than that, depending on where you're at. And those areas, I, what do you think? What would, what would you say percentage-wise, which is unmanaged, but it's a, a crucial part of our edge habitat, if you, if you, if you will, um, the edge or the transition between short crop to tall trees, what percentage would you say, based on the farm, would be smooth brome? Of just that edge stuff? Yeah. I don't. I mean, only a, only a few percent, but it added up to miles. Oh, miles of... So, right, because it's this skinny edge, that, it's, it's only, I don't know, it's 5% of the farm, maybe, you think? Maybe, I don't know. yeah, I mean... Maybe less than that, but it literally was miles because it was... Nine, every, I would say 90% is smooth brown. Every field border was that way, and with the rolling contour that he's talking about, you know, it went up one side, down the other. Every, it's 5 to... 20 yards wide around every field, every finger, and all of it was smooth brome, but had big blue and other things trying to poke its little goldenrod. Even found rough blazing star in one spot on that. Yep. And uh, it's just oh man, it's a very simple fix. I mean, it's a it's a couple of days with a UTV with a boomless sprayer, and I mean he had the exact, almost the exact same sprayer setup that we have where it's boomless but it's a three and a half foot boom that shoots a 30 foot swath turn the two nozzles off and shoot that glyphosate out uh in november or march uh we're looking at the time frame when a couple of frosts have occurred all the natives most of the natives are all but uh dormant so we know we're not going to damage them or hurt them uh but that smooth brome is trying to take up the last bit of nutrients it can for the year and store it up in the in the roots for the winter and we're sending in herbicide to kill it off and uh or you do it in the spring before everything starts greening up uh as far as natives that's green it looks great and hit it with herbicide and and kill it um if you just did that for two afternoons you just turned turned on the sprayer and hit that one boom you just put along that edge and kill it out and what seems like a very small, minute management technique, we're restoring miles and turn that into acres and acres and acres of one of the most visited and used parts of a property is that transition or that edge from one habitat type to the next. And they got to walk through it every day, right? They got to walk day. through it multiple times, potentially. Uh, you know, at least a couple times a day if they're coming out of, if they're going coming out of the timber uh, into the crop or or the alfalfa or whatever, and then back again, and then they're going to do that again. I mean, we're at least having two, three, four passes through this. Uh, my goodness! And imagine so. I mean, that would be my first thing I'd do if I owned that farm. Spray uh, cool season grasses absolute, out of the areas that they don't need it. Because I can go over here and make a, a you know, he had some whole fields that, that we recommend that he sprays too. But that's a one block, 20 acre field over here that, 
you know, some of the deer will never know that field exists on this farm because yeah. they live on the, but this edge deal went around the whole farm. Yeah. <laughs> so the first thing I do is I affect my entire farm with this whole side spray and this edge stuff. And I change the plant composition there. And now all of a sudden they feel more comfortable. I got different heights. I got better heights, smooth brome, you know, is only shin high, knee high. But I actually have food in here too. It's, yeah. And, and it's not only benefiting the deer, benefiting the turkeys, benefiting the quail. Benefit, Absolutely. Uh, yep. Cocktail rabbits. How many rabbits did we see? I don't yeah, remember uh, seeing I a never, single one. Never saw one. No. Never saw one. Uh, and acres and acres that we covered. And I think that's a very good testament of what's yeah. lacking. Well, yeah, he doesn't have the shrubby component. He, he just doesn't, doesn't have the have. shrubby component. He doesn't have those old fields, those bramble thickets. Yeah. I don't remember seeing a patch of, like, just no. blackberry. No. Um, and so adding those to it, you know, adding those areas are... 100% going to increase your benefit to wildlife, your habitat that's benefiting wildlife. Removing, I got asked this a while back on a podcast, way back. Somebody asked me, like, what's some of the biggest, your, some of your biggest fears in the future of land management? And I said invasive species. Uh, I should have just said non-native species because there's a lot of non-natives that are affecting habitat that aren't considered invasive. Like, Smooth brome, tall fescue, yep. bahay grass, Bermuda grass. They're encroaching these native areas, and a cattle farmer's utilizing them in his pastures, so it comes across as a great thing. But yet, you step over the fence and you get into another area where no cow's ever going to go. It's now a problem. I'll piece it together. You know, those edges, that's the thing to me. It's just. It's a very, very simple, very simple uh, management technique that, uh, I mean, you could put your Bluetooth earbuds in and listen to podcasts or music, fill up the sprayer in the back of your UTV or tractor, and putt along and make drastic improvements to the habitat. Yep. Like I I said, that'd be the first thing I'd do, a no-brainer. It'd be easy. Super easy. I, I think if you were if you were to prioritize a a year and say, okay, what are we going to do to make this better? I'm saying, well, I know in the spring, March, April, I'm spraying smooth brome, or November, December, I'm spraying smooth brome, and in between that time frame, or after that in the spring, I'm going to go cut in my bedding thickets. Yep. And just like that. Two different times of the year, two different projects. I be you would be hard pressed to find something that you saw the most immediate results with, and also change the habitat as quick uh, uh, that quick. <coughs> Sorry. Oh, you're good. Oh, completely agree. Well, you don't have to hold on. Point that up more towards your mouth. I feel like I can hear the car. <coughs> I don't know. Com- completely agree. That's why I can tell on the audio. Like, 
when I look at the audio lines, I can look at that and go, oh, okay, there's that spot. Okay, I got you. Because I'll see major waves. Spikes, I got yeah. you. So I'm even blinking out. No, I'm doing okay. Yeah, totally yeah. agree. You, you pause again and they say, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. The, this whole edge deal, um, it, it would it would change so many things. So, you know, his top priority was was for deer hunting, and, and which is fine, obviously. Well, his number two was land stewardship. So think about, I mean, these smooth brome edges had at least have some water infiltration effect. Um, they're, they're acting as buffer strips, right? But if those are in natives, I mean, he's meeting so many more objectives. And land stewardship in the, in the case of good for a variety of species, not just deer, but he's also looking at, you know, this guy's of the age that, hey, I want to pass on to my kids something that's worthwhile. I want to do the right thing for the for the soil, I want to do the right thing for the entire ecosystem. I want to do the right time, right things for the environment. He's got a real, not actually two different creeks uh, going through him, coming together, intersecting on him. Uh, one of them's a pretty major. I'm sure it's a. Oh, uh, I don't know. We'd have to look at the map, but it's it's probably a third order stream at least. I would say that was running yeah. through him. So, <clears throat> the natives coming into those those what turn into buffer strips on all these fields all of a sudden you know it's more than just it's better for the deer it's better for the quail it's better for the rabbits it's better for you know the water infiltration it's better along these crop fields um it's filtering out uh, herbicides yeah herbicides is filtering out um fertilizers there's so many things that this is helping with the the complete system of this farm and what's going downstream and uh, just a huge and he may never consciously we we talked a little bit about some of that stuff and some of the pastures but even if that's not you know his conscious goal it's still still the right thing and it's going to make a big difference and and we know for a fact that uh, a diversity of plant types in those situations because you have a diversity of root lengths, you have a diversity of, of root types and root structure that they filter out and infiltrate more of those things uh, than a monoculture. So, Yeah, especially uh, you know, when you look at the root structure of a turf grass or a yep. uh, non-native cool season grass like smooth brome. It's not, it doesn't even compare to like a root structure of big blue stem. Yep. And they, or the blazing stars. Yep. And th- yeah, some of these are, I mean, you know, several feet deep roots where these yeah. turf grasses are literally less than a foot deep. Yeah. Um, the water infiltration test, if you've ever seen that on diverse natives versus um, cool season monocultures, I mean, it's not even comparable. Uh, depending on the soil type, it could be five to one, up to ten to one. Uh, water infiltration. So think of the floods we've had, especially this year here in the Midwest. We've just had massive amounts of rains. Everything's flooding all the time. Well, what if we could take a lot more of that water into the soil, you know? Yeah. Um, man, if you had farm mm-hmm. after farm after farm that was infil- 
that more of this water was going into the soil instead of just running straight off and hitting the streams, we'd reduce all of that stuff. So it, yeah. it this stuff matters in the grand scheme of things. For sure. Uh, think about how many ponds you see in that part of the world. Every little draw has a pond, yep. and a lot of that comes down to they're trying to slow the water down yep. so it doesn't erode out the whole ditch so they can cross that sway and go from pasture A to pasture B. Yep. And they're putting in these ponds to try to slow this er- erosion down, collect this water, and a lot of this could be fixed by not grazing it in dirt, but having also a diversity of species that have these root structures that that can basically take the water in and create a sponge effect rather than a brick effect with your runoff. And, and so... We look at land stewardship, and you look at habitat improvement, and then let's just say for a for a deckum deer hunter, they all three should should applause this project and say, "Dang, we can flat change some stuff here. We can all get something awesome out of this." You and bet. even an upland bird hunter goes, "Well, now I'm not kick, trying to kick up." little one covey a day yeah, in yeah. smooth brown maybe i'll get a few more coveys yeah this stuff shouldn't be mutually exclusive in anybody's mind you know if you're thinking well you know i'd like to do good stuff for the environment but i really need to concentrate on i mean i want to i want to deer is my deal or quails my deal or big deer is my deal whatever well that's they're not mutually exclusive yeah you can have big deer and have good Stewardship practices. In fact, it's, I will argue that you have more likely chance of growing big deer with the better stewardship practices. Absolutely. I would agree 100% with that. Let's talk a little bit about next project. Like uh, we talk, We're talking about the edge restoration, doing the, the, the work to improve the edge, removing smooth brome. Um, let's go to another one. We talked a little bit about it, but I just want to sum it up before we move to the next big one, um, and it was that two big fields that were burned and had a lot of natives in it. I see a lot of fields like that, and I'm sure you do too, where yep. it, it looks good, but it's not great because there's still a underlying turf grass that's keeping it running at 75%. Um, and it's a very simple fix by spraying that out during those two times of the year and as soon as you do that and let's say let's say he does that and he burns it in a, a dormant season fire he burns it in february or march uh he's he's promoting the grasses he's removing that duff uh of the dead cool seasons and can you imagine i, I know what happens because i've i've seen i witnessed that restoration in southern iowa but uh, i mean it's one little simple project yep. that completely it's a it's one project that you do maybe two years you do the initial one and then you come up and you follow it up the next year and you make sure you you've cut the head off that cool season grass um, figuratively not literally but um, you've you've removed it and that is something that just like we talked on the glade restoration a couple weeks ago that is something that is long felt. Uh, It's a restoration that should last for years. Absolutely. Rather than a a food plot, which is something that 
you could argue a little bit that it's a little bit detrimental. Uh, it is detrimental to other species, especially if you're if you took a field like we're describing that's got all that cool, uh, all that warm season grasses, all those forbs. You've got the cool season native species mixed in. You take that and you, then you put it into a monoculture food plot. You've hurt the habitat for a lot of species. Oh, absolutely, and especially on this farm, you know, there's no. He had plenty of food. There's not even a need to do that. Yeah. But and this is on a on a, you know, there was two knobs kind of uh, side slopes and comes up to a to a hilltop. So certainly, I'm sure at some point in its history, it may, it may have been cropped. It certainly had been, you know, plowed and seeded to to non-native brown. So. Uh, and that project, the only, it wouldn't even take two hours to spray the, these no. two fields. I mean, literally, the the shortfall of that was be going and filling his spray tank. It yeah. probably would have taken him longer to go back and fill a spray tank two or three times and to apply to this these two fields. And oh yeah. my, I mean, literally, that the, the snap stuff, the snap of your fingers, and it's like. Yes. And Good the, to great. The stuff, uh, it, um, it's hard because you guys can't, you, you're not seeing it, but you can visualize it in your mind. I mean, this this isn't warm season grasses and forbs that are coming up, seeds that were left over from some other, this used to be in CRP or something. This is the real deal stuff that God put there 10,000 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> that those two hilltops were prairie for thousands of years and then they got turned into something else in the turned last in the pasture in the last i don't know from less than 50, 50 yeah. years 60 years yeah got converted and this stuff's just been laying there waiting for somebody to do the right thing so i don't know i'm, I'm getting all touchy-feely here but we do it every week so it's, it's know, very good Welcome to the club. No, it's just, this is what this was supposed to be. This is what Mother Nature intended those fields to be. Yes. And you got to feel good about putting it back to to what it was. That's it. Yeah. And and so, like, just in, we just talked about it with, with converting the edge and then converting these fields. Just with a, a, few, a few days' work. And snap your fingers and we're going somewhere. Yeah. And now we take this farm, which was a great farm very beautiful from scenes but from from the views from the vistas but from habitat like ah there's a lot of work but it's not like work that's like oh this is going to take 10 years to complete this we could complete it this fall he could turn around and and be filled up waiting ready and as soon as we get a couple hard frosts he's out there spraying it doesn't even look like the same place this time next year yep change the functionality that quick for yes. for deer for multiple species and the functionality of the entire system yeah and then so you know a big part of where they're hunting is the is the woods is the forest um and and that was just that 90 percent of the farms we look at that's how they look they hunt the woods but like you said in our conversation, it's one of the worst places as far as habitat and benefits to the wildlife when you look at it because it's close canopy forest. Yeah, there's almost zero um, oak regen happening 
Um, you know, what little bit, probably it had some grazing history in the timber. We know it did. The, you know, a little bit of buck brush understory. But they're yeah. just, for the most part, there was no understory. Not, Not only was there no grass or forbs or anything, there wasn't even regen of trees. Yes. Um, so, yeah, there's about zero food. You know, a good a good acorn crop year, a good mass production year. I'm going to have a little bit of, of acorns to feed on for a few weeks and then they're going to be gone and then that's it there's nothing else there's zero woody brows in this timber for the most part and and that like a lot of people that's where they hunt and so you're trying to chase and pattern a deer that's really got no reason to be at this corner of the woodlot versus that corner of the woodlot because there is no difference there might be the occasional tree that has a few more acorns than than the other trees in certain areas and you get a little bit of a pattern but that's a very short window um and so i mean we preach this so much but how can you do how can you improve that for hunting with a stewardship mindset and this is where some people may how in the world does cutting trees come come with a stewardship management mindset and we're looking at it from a landscape of saying what's healthier for the trees more sunlight less competition at the same time we're adding diversity through uh, more sun's energy is reaching the forest floor what does that mean that means there's more energy reaching the forest floor so now there's more plant communities growing Um, hopefully there's more herbaceous plants so we get some summer forage there's some of the trees we cut are growing back from that roots that root system so now we have uh, young forest regeneration, which is providing woody brows as well as cover. Um, and now, just by taking this chunk of ground, just chunk of timber and adding whatever, four, five, six, a dozen wood wildlife openings or bedding thickets in the timber, we now have some places that are breaking up this, uh, fragmenting this large area of closed canopy forest to not only add more food, add more benefits to non, uh, non-game non species, but also it makes some incredible hunting opportunities and incredible ways to pattern deer and have a pretty good idea where deer are going when you see them moving through the timber. It's like, well, I know that deer is headed over to the bedding thicket. It's walking straight towards it. And you start seeing that, that, that shift. You're like, well, instead of just sitting in the timber and hoping I can see a long ways, now I'm going, well, I'm hunting next to these bedding thickets because I know that good deer is in this area, and there's a good chance he's going to come by today. Yep. Yeah, or, you know, hey, south wind, uh, I've, got a, I've got a stand set up between this bedding thicket and uh, mm-hmm. this food plot, and I'm, you know, whatever, 50 yards off of, of where I expect them to travel between the two and, and play the south wind. And maybe I've got a stand set up for the north. It just make everything more predictable. Yeah. But, uh, I want to go back to your stewardship comment on this cutting the timber. And I know you guys have talked about it umpteen times on this podcast. But, you know, for people that are reluctant thinking, oh, man, I still can't wrap my head around going in and doing a clear cut or even, a you know, cutting 90% of the tree. And we're not talking huge areas, but to make these bedding thickets or forest openings. And it just doesn't seem, you know, is that really good for the forest? Is that really, should that really happen? Or even heavy TSI where you really open it up and put sunlight to the floor like Adam's talking about. Well, two examples tells you why it's okay and, and how you know that 
historically it was this way. One, do a little bit of it and see what grows. Because you're not, we don't have to plant anything in this timber. And when big blue stem grows in the woods or goldenrod or some other forbs start popping up, uh, ding, 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 guess what? Those plants didn't just magically appear. The, you know, the forest fairy didn't drop them out of the sky because we ran a chainsaw in there. No, they've been laying there for 50, 75 years waiting for someone to cut the stuff because they were there historically. Yeah. The seeds have been in the ground. The other thing you can look at, of course, is crowns. Look at the tree crowns. If, you, if you're honest with yourself and you go in a closed canopy forest, you're only going to find a handful of trees that are, most cases across the United States, that the trunks are as big as the hood of the car, right? The original, oh my gosh, you know, some Native Americans slept under this tree. This is a 300-year-old tree. And those have these giant limbs and huge crowns. Wolfy. Wolf trees, right. This guy called them remnants. Uh, yeah. Remnant trees. Um, look at most of the rest of the trees. The crown grows in a V. You have two or three main branches coming off the trunk but they grow up in a V instead of out. And that's because they were grown in a closed situation. Those trees, if, they're, if they have a V shape to them, I can about guarantee you 99% of the time, they've grown in the last 100 years. So that's, <laughs> that's not what was here historically. So again, stewardship, trying to get back to, to how nature was before we kind of screwed it up in most <laughs> cases. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, there's telltale signs out there. The plant response is, is a big one. Those seeds are there, and they're just waiting for someone to release them. This fall, i got to get you guys down to see our project on the Prairie Hollow property, but we did this big woodland restoration. We talked about it. We posted oh, yeah. pictures about yep. it. You know, there's areas that were right next to the gravel road that were uh, kind of eroded away, and it was just dirt kind of. There was a lot of natives, like, poking through. Um and we had we had Indian grass last year, a couple of years ago that we noticed, and there were some other little golden rods popping. But when we cut this whole slope, we've got big blue stem, over six foot tall, with a fourteen sixteen inch crown yeah. at the at the at the ground that's yeah. that tall and seeds everywhere. That doesn't grow overnight. That doesn't grow in one year. That's something that's been there for years and years and years and years and years. Yep. And has just been laying on the forest floor just begging yep. for a, a screaming hot fire or a man with a chainsaw to come through and, and take the noose out from around its neck. And uh, we did that. And, I mean, you drive by it and you want to talk about birds. And if you're not a birder, I'm sorry, you need to be a birder. It's pretty amazing to watch and see the different species that come into these areas but i think uh, this part of southern iowa red-headed woodpeckers you'll see it there a lot sure uh or not a lot but you'll see it there more than most places in the country or a lot of other places in the country and you're not going to see them a whole lot in closed canopy forest you yep. start opening this up and creating these woodland savannas woodlands and savannas um you're going to start seeing more species like that flying around and so i think of these bedding thickets you're going to start seeing hot spots where there's birds running around or flying around and, and using these areas because there's more insects, because there's more forbs, flowering plants yep. in those areas. 
Well, so. and yet another telltale sign. Mother Nature telling you, hey, this is what it was supposed to be, right? Yeah. The species start showing back up, hopefully. In some cases, you know, some species aren't as mobile. Um, some of them aren't going to show back up, unfortunately, and we've lost species across the United States. But the, you mentioned the red-headed woodpecker. Well, some people will be probably quite shocked to know, but they've had a massive decline over the last 40 years. Yeah. Well, guess why? Because it's overstocked timber. Yeah. We Smokey the Bear was a good intention. You know, let's not have forest fires and don't let your campfire cause a forest fire. But it turned into everybody was scared of burning. And once we start getting scared of burning, our timber started growing up and we're overstocked. Yeah. Uh, and that's not good for a red-headed woodpecker. Not good for a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Just for one sure. example. So... Some up, you know, I don't know how far along in this podcast we are, but we probably ought to start wrapping up soon. But headed down the road, trying to trying to give you guys a visual of, you know, what we experience, and and hopefully this podcast is very motivating because we're talking on this farm. We've got fall or spring spraying, yep, and he could knock out ninety percent. Uh, he could probably get all of it if he devoted a week to spraying. Oh, yeah. Easy. He could knock all of that out. Yep. All the edges of the fields, he could knock it all out. Yep. And then this winter, he could jump in with a chainsaw. Yep. And you could probably knock out most of the bedding thickets, these wa- oh, wildlife yeah. openings. Heck, he could do it. I mean, he's got a skid steer with a tree saw. Yeah. I mean, seriously. He, yeah. He could. And a bunch of this stuff is... I don't know, 40-year-old timber. Um, so small enough diameter, a lot of it he could take out with a tree saw. So oh, yeah. uh, he could blow through stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope he does. I hope he's, I think he seemed that passionate about it. For I th- sure. I think he's going to attack it. But you know. Yeah. And I think yeah, just in those three types of practices, we're looking at completely flipping this farm into now, okay, we've made some drastic changes. It's never going to hunt the same, thankfully. Yep. yep. And then we can get, we can start working on some stuff that takes a little longer. Heavy TSI and 30-acre chunks. Um, changing food plots and rearranging stands and getting a little bit more technical. But right now, the biggest improvements are some of the, the biggest improvements to make the biggest results are going to take the littlest time. Yeah. And that's what should be very, very exciting uh, for for the landowner as well as listeners that are like, man, I, I need to start doing this. Yeah. I, I made the, I'll close it out or we'll start wrapping it up. But one of the phrases I told to him and, and you in our, in our little exit meeting was, if I closed on a farm August 15th and I only had a few days to go to that farm to work, I told that if if I had the opportunity to plant one food plot, let's say it's an acre food plot versus a chainsaw and get in a bunch of bedding thickets, I'd fire up the chainsaw. Absolutely. And because that's how much I've seen it change your hunting, I've seen it change my hunting success. Um, it doesn't take as much money. Um it's it's so beneficial to a wide variety of animals, and uh, I would do it. I totally believe in it, and uh, and that's coming from a guy who loves food plots. 
Well, and think about, so he mentioned multiple times, and I don't know how many stands he had. Well, he probably had 15, 18 stands scattered around yeah. on this place. And he mentioned multiple ones. Well, well, we always see a lot of deer out of this stand, but we never know which direction they're coming from. And, and he didn't, not picking on him, but he'd say, you know, ah, my buddies always gripe. Well, they, they came from the wrong way. Or then I got, and he said, oh, I can't control where the deer come from. Well, can you? Because <laughs> we suggest otherwise. Yeah. And uh, I, that alone, when he starts manipulating this deal and saying, hey, now I can control, how many of those deer are they not seeing? His buddies aren't seeing yeah. the 182 that winded his buddy at 140 yards and slipped out, and no one ever saw that deer. That's I right. Mean, that's not good. That's not okay. No. <laughs> no. Usually you're seeing, you're going to see the, the, the ones that aren't as leery if, yeah. if the wind is bad. So, yeah. Um, but no, the, I, I love it. What, so your first time consulting with me in southern Iowa, um, you've heard me talk about how wonderful southern Iowa is and how, <laughs> I almost don't want to say it, but unfair to the rest of us oh, because yeah. of no. the amount of natives that will just, yeah. oh, we overgrazed. Oh, look, we have a field of, we have a native prairie. Yeah. No, it's it's pretty disgusting. <laughs> I mean, I love it, but yeah, no, it it's we got to work about four times as hard down where we're at to to make something like that, and you know, to have again not picking on, we, he's got plenty of things he can do, but he's not that far away, and when you you've got you know deer that most people would a deer of a lifetime to shoot on the farm already, it. <laughs> With closed canopy forests, introduced exotic grasses, I mean, my goodness, a few tweaks and all of a sudden it's world class and just the huntability of it. They've got some of these world class deer. I think they, they're going to have bigger deer in the future. But I think they'll stop seeing them leave. Yep. They'll stop worrying about the neighbors killing them. But yeah, their harvest has been highly unpredictable. And part of that is they don't know where they're going or coming anytime. And that can be fixed. That's right. So, anyway, guys, um, yeah, uh, I think hopefully you guys enjoyed it. If you have any questions or interest in uh, consulting, um, I mean, we're booking up so fast. We've got lots and lots of uh, consulting lined up in the spring and this winter. We're going to be in... Oh, we listed them out a couple podcasts ago, but Oklahoma, Texas, uh, looks like maybe Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, um, Illinois, I believe, Kentucky, pretty much anywhere. Um, so, guys, just shoot us an email at info at landandlegacy.tv. Um, you could get Frank, Kyle, myself, Matt, on your property to help you with a wide variety of things deer habitat deer management deer hunting upland birds uh what else fisheries yep fisheries pond start stepping into that world yeah got some background in that actually quite a bit of background so so well yeah if you own land we can probably help you and uh hopefully you guys will take us up on it and uh if not Keep enjoying the podcast. Check out the videos on YouTube or our Facebook page at Land and Legacy. Thanks, guys. Thanks.